My name is Danny. I'm a pastor here at Hope Ames, and I'm so glad that we get to worship together today. We say it all the time around here, and we really mean it. We believe it is no accident that you are here. We are praying for you, and it's great to be able to gather in this space together today. Now, today, we're going to continue our sermon series called, Say What? Making Sense of Jesus' Most Shocking Statements. That song might have been a little bit shocking for you to hear in church, but that's good because in the Bible, we see Jesus saying shocking things all the time. Jesus also says some shocking things about sex and about our closest and most intimate relationships. Are you nervous to talk about sex today? Let me tell you what, I am. <laughs> if you feel uncomfortable, try putting the microphone on. I am uh, 29 years old. Some of you in this room are old enough to be my grandparents. Nobody likes talking about sex with their grandparents, but we're going to go for it today. We're just going to try. Why not? No, we do this because God talks about it. Um, and I know that sex uh, can make us cringe, can make us squirm a little bit, and it can make us feel shame. When I was in seminary, and during our preaching class, one of the topics, one of the projects that we had to do was really simple. We just had to practice reading scripture out loud in front of our classmates. And uh, one of the things that we had to do is we had to pick a passage, stand in front of everyone, and then, like I said, just read it out loud in front of everyone. And then the class would provide their feedback and criticism about how you read God's word. So it's really healthy in seminary these days uh, and terrifying at the same time. It's a weird experience. I don't remember, I, I couldn't tell you what a single person in that class decided for their passage, except for one guy. One guy named Lawrence, who I still know today. Lawrence got up there and he decided he was going to read from Song of Songs, also known as Song of Solomon. Uh, if you don't know your Bible, uh, I encourage you to uh, go on an adventure and open up today to Song of Songs. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of a sample from Song of Songs, chapter 7, that he read to all of us in seminary with our professor. And keep in mind that in this class, they, they encourage us to make eye contact while we were reading God's word to one another. And so let's just begin. How beautiful are your sandaled feet, O queenly maiden. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a skilled craftsman. The entire class starts to shrink into their seats. He continues, your navel is perfectly formed like a goblet filled with mixed wine. Between your thighs lies a mound of wheat bordered with lilies. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> but it's God's word, so I'm going to continue. <laughs> Lawrence makes eye contact with me when he says, your neck is as beautiful as an ivory tower. Your eyes are like the sparkling pools in the Heshbon. Your nose is as fine as the Tower of Lebanon overlooking Damascus. Oh, how beautiful you are. How pleasing, my love. How full of delight. And then this part just makes me feel uncomfortable. How slender you are, like a palm tree. And your breasts are like it's clusters of fruit. Anybody want to just rethink taking their kids to Hope Kids today? <sighs> May your kisses be as exciting as the best wine. I honestly like, can't look at my wife right now, and I don't even know why. Oh, I would totally fail this assignment. As I look back on that, and I remember just wanting to, cr I mean, just shrink into my seat and disappear, as I'm able to remember that today, I remember that I was feeling a sense of shame. Sex has a way of making us feel shame, and that comes from all different places. Shows up for all kinds of reasons. For some of us, it's because we're dealing with some things of the past, 
whether it's choices that we made or choices that someone made and put on us. For some of us, it's not wanting to talk about the truth about what's happening inside of us when we think about sex or how we want to express ourselves when it comes to sex. It can make us cringe. It can make us feel shame. It can make us feel like we have to cover up. But here's the interesting thing. As I think back on that, sex has a way of making us feel such shame that it even makes me feel shame to read God's word. What? I mean, that's an eye-opener for me. God didn't intend for us to experience shame. And that includes when we talk about sex and intimacy. In the book of Genesis, it tells us this. The man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. And some of you are like, let's get back to the Garden of Eden. And most of us are like, please, no. (laughs) They felt no shame. They're both naked, but they had nothing to be embarrassed about. The Bible also says this in the beginning. The first command that God gives to humanity is be fruitful and multiply. Translation, God is telling humanity, with that person that you are committed to for your life, have sex with them. God's actually saying, do it. Man, God did not intend for us to feel shame about this. And yet, we do. You go forward just to Genesis chapter 3, and as sin enters the world, it says they suddenly felt shame about their nakedness. Why did they feel shame about their nakedness? Why did they feel like they had to cover up? It's not like all of a sudden they became aware for the first time, I have a body. What is it? When we're ashamed, we try to cover up. We try to cover up because we're trying to protect ourselves. We're trying to protect ourselves from an intruder who might do something wrong with what we consider most valuable. What was the shame that they felt? The shame that they felt came from a sense of needing protection. It came from a sense of defense. I need to cover myself because suddenly I don't trust the person in front of me with what I have. And I don't trust that person because I know what they're capable of. And I know what they're capable of because I know what I'm capable of. Sin at its core is when we believe that we know better than God. And we express that in the actions of saying, I don't actually have to listen to God. Like, isn't that crazy? If you read the creation story, God gives them these commands and it's really simple. It's really easy. God just says, be fruitful and multiply, reign over creation, and don't eat from that one tree. It's almost humorous. You can have all this, just don't eat from the tree. And then there comes this realization, I don't have to listen to God. I don't have to. God loves you so much. God is so about healthy relationships, and in healthy relationships, both people get a say. Both people have free will. And God is so about those kinds of healthy relationships that God says, no, you do not have to listen to me. And yet sin is the thing that pops up in our lives and reminds us that we cannot always trust the people in front of us. We feel shame in general in our life because we don't trust the person in front of us and I think that comes from a sense of not trusting ourselves. We know that the person is capable of disobeying God because I know I'm I'm capable of disobeying God. And it drives us into a place of shame. Naturally, when we think about shame, we think of it as a problem. And naturally, when we have a problem, we like to find a solution. So if on one end of the spectrum there is shame, we're like, okay, the solution for that, the antidote to that must be pride. 
What's the opposite of shame, we think? Well, the opposite of shame is pride. The Bible pushes back on that thought, though. In the book of Proverbs, it tells us pride leads to shame. In some translations, it says disgrace, but the same word in the Old Testament for disgrace is the same word for shame. It leads us into a place of covering up. It leads us into a place of needing protection, needing defense, because we're scared, because we're aware of what human beings are capable of. Pride leads to shame. All of a sudden, we realize that it is not so much a spectrum, but instead it is much more of a circle. Shame and pride are not on the opposite ends of the spectrum. They're just different sides of the same coin. There's one pastor who said a while ago that shame and pride are not antidotes from one another. Instead, they're siblings. Pride is the thing that drives you into the fall, and shame is the thing that keeps you from getting up. Pride is the thing that tells you, I'm too good for other people, and shame is the thing that says, I'm not good enough. Both of them leave us in isolation. It's two sides of the same coin. We tell ourselves, I can fight my shame with my pride by just telling myself I'm good enough. Sometimes we think that we can fight the shame of sexuality by bringing it out into pride and saying, well, I'm just going to talk about it all the time and my, my sexuality is everything that I am. I believe that one of the most unhealthy things that we can do is to take any particular piece of who we are and make that everything about who we are. There is only one label that goes over your entire life. The only label that goes over your entire life is you are a child of God. And every single other thing about you is a detail about you. And it is so important to know the difference between your identity and the things about you. And it is equally important to know the difference between the identity of somebody else and the things about them. It is not fair for you to take one detail about another person, whether that's good or that's bad, and make that their entire identity. It's what either leads us into shame or it either puffs us up into pride and says, well, this is the thing that makes me whole. This is the thing that makes me who I am. All of a sudden, we start to project that on other people. Maybe instead of saying, well, I can't talk about sex ever, you become the person who says, well, we just need to talk about sex all the time. And we force people into these conversations that aren't comfortable, that they're not ready for. And the truth is, is when you push someone into a place conversationally and it's about sexual nature that they're not ready to discuss yet, that's pretty much textbook sexual harassment. Let's not push each other into those places. Let's not think that we can fight shame with pride. Shame and pride are united by this one thing especially, and it's control. Shame, we are controlled by others, telling us who we are. And pride is we're trying to control others to tell them who we are. It's one coin. It's two sides. That book of Proverbs, it continues in that passage where it says pride leads to shame but with humility comes wisdom. The antidote to pride and shame, the antidote to shame, the antidote to control, it's humility. Sometimes we think that uh, shame is where the truth is, right? But it hurts us and we don't like that. And so then we try to fight it by saying, well, you just have to love people all the time no matter what. And, and we say, well, that, that's pride, right? Like, be proud of yourself. And we think that those things can't go together. But that's not true. Truth and love are not opposites. Sometimes we think that in order to love someone, you have to ignore the truth. In order to tell somebody the truth, you can't love them in that moment. But the truth is, I do not think that actually you can love the person that you're judging in a moment. In the same moment, I do not believe that you can love and judge a person at the same time. 
There's another pastor who said a long time ago that it is not my job as a child of God to judge people. It is the Father's job to judge. It is the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It is the Son's job to save. It is my job to love. Good news, you gotta take a lot of weights off of your back. Your job's to love. It's simple, it's easy. And so what is humility made up of? Well, the Bible tells us this, truth and love are not opposites, but instead, what it tells us in Psalm chapter 85 is unfailing love and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. You want to know the truth about love? Love is not love if it's not the truth, but truth is not helpful if it's not shared in love. If you're going to love someone, you have to tell them the truth. If you want to be loved, you're going to have to receive truth. But if you want to be helpful with the truth, you're going to have to love someone. There may be people in this world that you look down upon because of something sexual about them. You have no right. There may be people in this world who look down on you because of something sexual about you. They have no right. But as children of God, we can be confident in our identity as God's children. Our confidence comes from our identity as God's children, not a single other detail about us. The other details about us are simple results. It's the fruit that comes out of being God's children. But our confidence comes from being God's children. Because we're God's children, we're siblings. We can have real honest conversations with one another. But they're rooted in truth and love. So let's take a look at our diagram one more time. Control is shame and pride, but humility is love and truth. Humility is love and truth. And so for the rest of this sermon, we're going to talk about love. We're going to talk about it in a true way. And we're going to be humble about it. I can tell you, as I've been thinking about this message, as I've been praying over it, I have been humbled over and again. I am not coming to you as someone today who has this figured out by practice, but instead I'm coming to you as someone today who's seen the opportunities and the options that are presented in the world, and then I see God's love. And it doesn't compare. It's not even close. God loves you. God loves you so much that God would tell you the truth, but God will never, ever separate truth from love. You can't escape that. And so we can humble ourselves before God and say, you know what, I, I don't have to control this whole thing. I don't have to be proud about it and I don't have to whimper away in shame. Instead, I can be truthful and I can follow your example of love and I can be filled with your love and share that love with the rest of the world. But it's going to take humility. As Christians, we have to humble ourselves when it comes to the way that we talk about sexuality. We have to humble ourselves. We can't look out at the rest of the world and say, you're so different and corrupt and messed up, as we are, and messed up but we're not, because statistically, that's not true. As Christians, it's very, humble that we hum it's very important that we humble ourselves when we talk about this, because truth be told, when it comes to the statistics about sexuality and sexual behavior, there is no difference between Christians and non-Christians. Did you know that? Divorce rates, when it comes to Christians and non-Christians, the exact same. Pornographic viewing, when it comes to Christians and non-Christians, the exact same. Sexual, sexual offenders and sexual abusers, same amount of Christians percentage-wise as there are non-Christians. In the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul is, is writing a letter to some people that he loves dearly. And he's begging them to change their ways. 
Maybe you've heard of this passage before. It's one of the most famous chapters in the entire Bible, and it starts like this. If I could speak all the languages of the earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noising gong or a clanging cymbal. And we hear that and we think, oh, that's beautiful, Paul. Wow. But here's the truth. Somebody didn't like say to Paul, hey, Paul, what's love? And he said, well, let me tell you. And he goes on this long list. No, he was actually speaking directly into their context. See, the non-Christians of those days, and sometimes Christians would refer to those people as pagans, they would practice their religious celebrations by banging loud and noisy gongs. And Paul is saying, if you don't love other people, if you don't humble yourself, you are no different than the people who don't know Jesus. And it's showing by the way that you're living your life. Throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is listing off these different things and these issues that are showing up in this church in Corinth. And he's saying, you're having the same problems with your lawsuits against one another. You're having the same problems with your betrayal against one another. You're committing the same sins against one another. You're no different. And the thing that's not different about you is you don't project love any differently than the non-Christians project love. The thing that makes us different as Christians is love. And when we, lose, when we lose sight of what true and real love is as Christians, we are no different. We're just noisy and loud clanging gongs. We're denying our identity as Jesus people. We're denying our identity as children of God. And we're saying, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and follow the world's example. And the truth is, statistically speaking, it's showing. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Another truth about um, statistics when it comes to Christians and non-Christians is that um, adultery is the same rate. Same percentage of Christians dabble in affairs as non-Christians. And I think that's really scary and frightening. But most of all, I think that it's sad. Jesus had something to say about that. You know, oftentimes we think, well, adultery, it's only that thing when I commit a physical sin, you know, with somebody else. And, but Jesus actually wants to open up our picture of that. And he, he says, you've heard it said before that you must not commit adultery. And then he continues and he says, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And again, we think that we know what Jesus is talking about when he says lust, but the funny thing about that is today we hear the word lust and we think of it as something sexual, but in those days the word for lust actually was not a sexual word. And it could have implied sexual, uh, it could have had sexual implications for sure, but it was not in and of itself a sexual term. Instead, it simply meant to covet, to want something that wasn't yours, to play the comparison game. To see something else and think that that was better than what you had. And so what Jesus is saying, if you are married, if you have committed to somebody else, you no longer look at other people in that sort of way to compare them to the person that you've committed your life to. And all of a sudden, we humble ourselves in Christ as Christians and say, you know what, maybe I haven't done the big sins in my life, right? What do you think are the big sins? As a pastor, I have these interesting conversations with people all of the time. Before they know I'm a pastor, they talk to me, and they feel comfortable, and they're happy, and they think I'm engaging, and it's fun, and then they ask, what do I do? And I know what's going to happen. I say, I'm a pastor, and they start to apologize. <laughs> I'm so sorry I said blank. I'm so sorry I told you about my smoking habits. I'm so sorry I told you about my drinking habits. I'm so sorry I told you about my sexual habits. Man. And if I could tell anybody anything in that moment, I would tell them, I'm no different than you. 
I'm no different than you. Maybe we have different expressions of it, but I'm no different than you. And you're no different than me. Again, we have no right to look down on someone for any of their behaviors or expressions. Doesn't mean that we don't tell each other the truth, but it does mean that we're prohibited from judging them. Jesus says, I say anyone who looks at a woman with lust, and if you're a woman, anyone who looks at a man with lust has already committed adultery in their heart. Now, I want to tell you this. Um, you may think, like, okay, well, I'm not married, or maybe you were married, and you think that it's, it's over, right? Um, I do think that this applies to everybody. Every single one of us is committed to somebody, right? And every single one of us has priorities, and we have certain priorities that we take care of more than anything else in this world, right? So think about it like this. When you're walking in this morning, I know that a lot of you walked in with umbrellas. What's under your umbrella in life? What are you trying to protect? Any healthy person, emotionally speaking, knows that there are only a certain amount of things that you can put underneath this umbrella of protection. And there are only a certain, a certain number of umbrellas that you can step under for other people and not be spread too thin. Look at the way that Jesus set up his own life. Jesus had large communities of people who would gather around him. And then he had a smaller group of friends. And then he had a small, small group of friends of 12 people. And then he had within those 12 disciples, he had three really tight best friends. He had his priorities. He had his commitments. And whether you are married or you are not, there are things in your life that you have committed to protect. There are things in your life that you have committed your life to. And it is so important for you to know for your emotional health, but also for your relational health, that there are only a certain amount of things that you can place under this umbrella. It does not mean that you don't love the entire world, but it does mean that you have saved that special place in your heart for certain people. It's healthy. It's intentional. It's the way that Jesus set up his life, and it's the way that we ought to follow. It's the example that we ought to follow for our lives. What is it that you're keeping under your umbrella? Maybe you feel burnt out. Maybe you feel completely spent. Maybe you feel way too spread thin these days. How many things are you trying to shove under your umbrella? And I'm not saying that because it's all about your own protection. I'm saying because it's about the protection about the people who you say are under your umbrella. You might say, well, my kids are the most important thing in the world to me. But every single night, you're looking at your work. You might say, well, my friends, I'm committed to them. I'll care for them. And then you invite somebody else under that umbrella to have a conversation about that person when they did you wrong. Who's under your umbrella? Are you committing to them? Or are you looking in other directions? Comparing. Well, maybe that other person has something for me. Jesus, uh, Jesus makes it really clear what he thinks about that. He says on the next slide here, um, if your eye causes you to lust, again, look that other direction, cut it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Gross. <laughs> but you want to play that comparison game? What's more important? I mean, seriously, what's more important? The person you love or the thing you're looking at? So what's more important, the person you love or your actual physical eye? The person you love or your actual physical hand? 
Now, I'm not saying that any of you should come back next week with eye patches and cut off hands. Please, that is not what this is saying. Because the truth is, you cannot change the past, but God can absolutely make something new out of your future. Remember how I started this. No shame. Read your Bible. The Bible wipes you clean from your shame. Jesus Christ washes you clean from your shame in his blood. Regardless of your past. Regardless of somebody else's past and how that impacted your past. God can make new life out of your future. God can make new life out of your future. I also think that it's worth saying this. Some of us are keeping, so we've got these umbrellas, right? And some of us have made those things under our umbrella even more important than they should be. I know that's weird, right? So we think, well, okay, the most important things in my life, you know, it's, it's my family, it's my work, you know, it, it's my passions. It's okay, good things to have underneath your umbrella, that's great, right? But let me tell you this. As good as those things are, they're not going to be your source for life, and they're not going to be your source for joy. There was a survey done among people uh, who had uh, committed affairs and were honest about it and opened up to it, which would not be an easy thing. Um, and so for as, as awful as, as that can be, um, to confess it and to admit it, it, if nothing else, it takes a lot of courage. Nonetheless, they were um, surveyed about it and asked about it. And what was the reason for why you did it? And the most common answer was, my marriage wasn't making me happy. I just got to be honest with you. Um, well, first off, I've only been married for a year and, um, Abby, uh, four months. <laughs> I know, I know it. I, I, I really do know it. A, a year and three months and 26 days, okay? I know it for sure. And so I'm not saying like, okay, I have marriage figured out. I don't. I'm learning from most of you about marriage, and I appreciate the example that you're setting for me. So thank you for that. You're making an impact on our life. I appreciate that. I'm not pretending like I, like I have this figured out. But one thing that I'm realizing is that Abby is never going to find her happiness that will find a happiness that will last in me. That's just the reality of it. Like, I'm way too flimsy. I'm way too breakable. I'm way too human. I'm way too capable of disobeying God. She's not going to find eternal happiness in me. We took the pre-marriage class at Hope, and um, on the first night of the pre-marriage class for us, they had us list off, what are our dreams for marriage? And so the entire group, we had this discussion, we start shouting things out, like, okay, well, our dreams for marriage, to see the world together. Our dreams for marriage, to have kids, our, our dreams for marriage, some people would say, like, to go into business with one another. And some of you are hearing that, you're like, no, do not do that, you know. <laughs> and pretty much all of it summed up to general happiness. In fact, that was probably the most common answer. Our dream for marriage is to be happy. Happiness is great, but it's only circumstantial. Happiness is a reaction. And there will be things in your marriage that you react to that you're very happy about, and there are things in your marriage that you'll react to that you'll be very sad about. And then Pastor Ben Mason, who led this class, and his wife Stephanie, they asked us, now what do you think are God's dreams for your marriage? And the word love showed up. 
I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I went to seminary. I'm pastoring people. I do weddings all the time. And I'm the one who didn't say love when I said, what are our dreams together? Not a single one of us said love when it came to what are our dreams for each other. But when we think about what's God's dream for your marriage, or what's God's dream for the closest relationships in your life, God dreams for you to have love. And God dreams not for happiness for you, but instead joy. Happiness is a reaction. Joy is a state. The Bible tells us that I go to God, the source of all my joy. If you are asking your partner in life, the person you've committed yourself to, to be your source for happiness, you're asking something out of them that they were never created to meet. That person cannot be your source of happiness in life. Marriage is not your source for happiness, but instead is an expression of the joy that God's already given you. And that's good news for all of us, whether we're married, single, divorced, or entirely hopeless when it comes to relationships. No matter where you are when it comes to the relationships in your life, you are already eternally filled with joy. You are eternally filled with love. God is the source of all of it. And every other person that's in your life is simply an opportunity to express that joy and to express that love. So maybe you're wondering, why am I so discouraged about my marriage? Why am I so discouraged about the things in my life? Why am I so discouraged about my circumstances? Why am I so discouraged about my friends? Why am I so discouraged about the state of my family? Whatever that might be, maybe the answer is that you're going to those places and those people and those things for your happiness, and they just weren't designed to do it. Instead, this psalm finishes off by saying, why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I know because I need to put my hope in God. I was never made, and the other person in front of you was never made to put our hope in one another. Turn to the person next to you and say, I love you. Say it. Now turn to the person next to you again and say, but I don't put my hope in you. <laughs> and that's one of the most freeing things you can do for the people around you. One of the most freeing things you can do for the relationships in your life, and one of the most healthy things that you can do for the relationships in your life, is to look at that person and say, you're not my savior, and I'm not yours. Because the truth is, no matter how close we get, there will be times when I'm tempted to just cover up. Because I know what I'm capable of, and because I know what I'm capable of, and I know what you're capable of, and it scares me sometimes. And this is, the, this is the really hard thing, right? And this is the thing that kept tripping me up throughout the entire week. There will be times when your worst dreams in a relationship come true. Whether it's big or small, in every relationship there's betrayal. Whether it's big or small, in every, and I mean every single marriage, there's adultery when we define it as Jesus defines it. And I'm not just saying, oh, well, you looked at another person. I'm saying, maybe you looked at your job. Maybe you looked at your dream. Maybe you looked at your kids. And you put it ahead of the person that God said, you're committed to that person before anyone else. There will be times in the relationships that we have where our worst dreams come true. There are biblical grounds for breaking up relationships. 
We have to know that love does not bar out consequences. There are consequences, and sometimes love insinuates consequences. If you really love somebody, sometimes you have to set up a boundary. If you really love somebody, sometimes you have to tell that person, set up a boundary. And so there is truth in this. There will be certain relationships in your life that might end and that might have boundaries, but you will not lose your hope. Whether you are just starting your marriage, whether you are hoping for marriage in the future, whether you are believing marriage is something that you've left in the past, every single one of us is the same on this. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is never lost. Your hope was never in a person. 1 John chapter 4 defines love for us. It's a beautiful passage that tells us about the way that God sees love. You know, a lot of times in our life, we think that we are loved based on our value. And we think that we can protect the relationships and the people underneath of our umbrella because of our value. But I want to show you really quick that that's not how it works. And so rather than show you an illustration, I mean, it's a little bit of an illustration, but truly like a real life example at the end of this sermon today to conclude, I want to invite my wife, Abby, up. Abby, will you come forward? Give Abby a round of applause. So this is my wife. She doesn't like doing this, but she, she, she said she would. So I asked. I did ask. <laughs> Dang it. I don't know why I get emotional around you. <laughs> so this is safe. I feel safer with you than I feel with any other person in the world. And I choose you before I choose any other thing in the world. And it's not because of anything that you could do for me. It's not because of anything I could do for you. My love for you is not based off of the value that you present to me. And your love for me is not based off the value that I present to you. Instead, our value is determined by the eternal and immeasurable love of God. So I don't need to bring other things in here. I don't need to feel like we don't have enough. I don't need to be worried about what else out there exists. Everything we need exists in here. Not because of you, not because of me, but because of the God who's called us into this space. This is what it looks like, right, when we start to put other things in there. So if we walk over here, like, we think, okay, so like, there's enough room for all of us, right? And then sometimes we create spaces for those other things. We feel so distant. Well, then we create space for another thing. Why are we not connecting? Why am I getting hurt? Why is she getting hurt? 
You know, sometimes we think that the spaces that we allow in this relationship and under this umbrella are only going to impact us. The truth is, when we reject the person, when we betray the person who's supposed to be, that we're supposed to be committed to, we're not just hurting ourselves, we're hurting them. Because we are not just forcing ourselves out of the protection, we're forcing them out too. And all of a sudden, we become obsessed with protecting things that we aren't even supposed to protect. That has, th- this doesn't belong in here. So who's the person that you've committed to? Who's the person that God's called you to serve and to love and to allow nothing in between the two of you? Let it look like this. We love each other because God loved us first. That's what brings you together. Not because nothing outside of the umbrella is better, but because you have a God who loved you first. And for those days when your worst dreams come true about your relationships and the scariest things happen, you remember this. Even when you falter, in the book of 2 Timothy, it tells us that even if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. For God cannot deny who he is. God cannot deny who he is. Remember we started this by saying your identity is, in, is, is being God's child. God's identity that he's now put on himself by choice is he's your father. And he will not deny that. He will be faithful to you. And so you can be faithful to those around you. And you can be faithful to the person in the space under your umbrella. You can be faithful. Amen. Let's stand up, on up and sing. Take a deep breath. We made it through together. And if you want me to be fired, just look at us and remember we're going to have to make it on our own. So <laughs> I love you, church. Amen.